You are listening to episode 273 of At Percussion Podcast. My name is Ksenia Komilenovic, and with me are my superstar co-hosts, as always, Ben Charles. Hey, Ksenia, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ben? Trying to stay warm. <laughs> how is everything there? Are you frozen? It is. Yeah, it is very cold. We, we're, luckily, we haven't had any precipitation yet, um, but we're, it's 90% chance tomorrow, so I think we're going to be out all this week. Oh, wow. Okay. Or yeah, we have a bit of this week, I should say. Yeah. Well, stay warm. You know, when it comes to Texas, you know that the, the cold is real. Winter's coming. Um, and also we have lovely Carly Vina. Hi, Carly. Yeah. Hey, Ksenia. In case anybody is wondering, it was 79 degrees this morning. It was lovely down here in Hollywood. Okay, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> go, go away, you Miami people. Go away. <laughs> I used to be that person. <laughs> And now you can hate them with, you know. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Carly, tell us what happened in music history today. Yeah, a couple of interesting things. Um, the, the first that I'll share with you is that in 2010 on our release date, which is what, February 25th, right? Today is February 25th. Um, in release world, um, Apple announced that it had surpassed 10 billion song downloads from the iTunes store, which is like, think about that, 10, 10 billion songs in 2010. Um, and of course, that was 11 years ago. The 10 billionth song was Guess Things Happen That Way by Johnny Cash. And I would love to play a little snippet of this for you, but I think we'd probably get flagged, so I won't. Um, but if you feel inclined to celebrate the 10 billionth iTunes download uh you can check out guess things happen that way by johnny cash um so i i looked a little bit like what were some of the milestones for itunes thinking like what is the scale of this um itunes was launched on april 28 2003 and to start the store only had 200,000 tracks available for download and only mac users could buy the tracks and then of course transfer music to their ipods so for anybody that doesn't know or doesn't remember this is an ipod Remember the little spinny wheel and, and the black and white screen and all that? This was my iPod that got me through so many walks around bus, uh, walks and bus rides around Boston um, back in 2009. Um, but anyway, so you had to remember you had to download the music from iTunes and then like transfer it to your, to your iPod. Um, six months later, in October of 2003, iTunes for Windows was released, and then people with PCs could also use it, so big deal. But imagine six months, only Mac users. Um, and, and then in 2004, they started launching in Europe and Canada, and global launches continued in the coming years, and iTunes, the iTunes store became the most widespread digital music service in the world. So a couple of benchmark achievements for iTunes over the years. Um, they had 70 million songs sold in the first year. 1 million music videos were sold 20 days after videos were introduced in 2005. And like, think about that. People were buying music videos and watching them on their iPods. I can only assume I wasn't cool enough to have an iPod in 2005. I was a little late to this technology, but think about that. 1 million music videos were sold um, in 2006. 1 billion songs had been downloaded and iTunes constituted 88% of legal music downloads in the US. I don't know what percentage of all music downloads because I still think at that time people were using Napster and what was it, LimeWire? I don't know. Anyway, 88% of legal music downloads in the US. Um, in 2007, iTunes was the most popular place to download movies, uh, which I guess like I kind of 
I don't think I ever downloaded a movie from iTunes, but I kind of kind of see that two million movies were sold um, in 2008. They reached the milestone of four billion songs had been downloaded um, and they became the second largest retailer of digital music in the US. And then in 2010, this is where our 10 billion songs were downloaded with Johnny Cash being the 10 billionth artist there. Um, and of course, in 2015, iTunes was rebranded to Apple Music, which is what they say, like Apple was kind of recognizing um, the, the, the future of music is streaming rather than paying 99 cents per song and loading it on your little iPod there. So I thought oh, that was that was kind of interesting. Um, seeing these years too, though, I was thinking, I think it was 2008 when I got an iPod and it was like so cool. And I was was like downloading my little NPR podcasts and loading them up before I had a long walk or a, a car ride or something like that. Um, but anyway, so that's that's the news on iTunes today. I do have one one more important piece of news today. Um, in the year 2000, for those of you that are watching on YouTube uh, are not watching on YouTube, maybe check it out. But um, in 2000, it was announced that Britney Spears, uh, Britney Spears has been in the news lately, right? Thought it was relevant, would be releasing her own brand of bubble gum, which is Britney Spears CD player bubble gum in March of, well, in here it says March of 2000, but it came up as news for today, February 25th. So um, here's what it looked like. It looked like a little, remember those CD players? I had one of those too. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so there it is. That's big, big news day today, February 25th. I, I will publicly, publicly admit now that my colleague Heather Hawk uh, told me that I had to watch the Britney Spears documentary on Hulu. Uh, and so I literally was just practicing watching that before the podcast. <laughs> but I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, like, she really was um, someone that, uh, you know, like, there's this sort of trope of like the child star that, you know, fell into you know, abuse by a system. And she definitely was that. And we're seeing the results of it today, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, back when bullying was still young, but strong, internet bullying, especially. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Carly. That was uh, a lot of great information, especially for precautionists. You will never forget <laughs> that Britney Spears snippet of information. <laughs> awesome. So I now have the privilege to introduce our guest today and he is a rising star from Portugal. He has won the Trump International Percussion Competition 2020, so the latest at just 22 years old. Uh, not only did he win the first prize, but he also won the press prize and the Friends of Trump Audience Award. But that's not where his awards end. He has also won first prizes at the Portuguese Young Musicians Contest with his Duo Metropolitana, and then the first international percussion competition from Beira Interior, and then Gondomar International Percussion Competition, and was named the 2016 Portuguese Young Musician of the Year. So he is currently a student at Conservatory of Amsterdam and was an exchange student at, and here is a bad attempt of a French accent, the Conservatoire National Supérieure Musique et Danse de Lyon. Everyone, please welcome the fabulous Agostinho Sicaira. Hey everyone, thanks for hey. being here. It's a big pleasure. And a very good pronunciation of all of the words. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, your, your name is very important. I had no help for, for the French long school name, so we'll see how that, how that goes. Um, ben, 
Would you like to start us off with something? So how, about, how about this segue? Well, speaking of schools, <laughs> I noticed that you have a, a recording of the piece Homework uh, by, again, pardon my bad pronunci pronunciation, but Francois Saran, something like that. Uh, and it's it's a piece that I've seen a couple people play. I know Garrett Mendelow plays it, um, but uh, it seems to be sort of one of those pieces that's sort of brewing and people will start playing this in, in years to come. But could you, it's such a, wild, bizarre ride of a piece. Could you tell us about how you encountered it and what it was like to play that piece? Yeah, so yeah, it's, it is a bizarre piece. It's funny because uh, before playing that piece, I actually played another piece by Francois Saran that is not actually as known as homework. It's a piece for prepared marimba and voice. And it's like also, it's called I Don't Belong to Your World. And it's also very nice and very like kind of uh, intense and extreme um so and after that i played homework it was actually in preparation for ard in munich in 2019 um so yeah i mean i always i always like this kind of um, pieces that has a lot of uh, you have to put your basically all of yourself in it like it's kind of it's like in the limit of between a percussion piece or a theater performance. So that's like this barrier that is kind of hard to find the, you know, where is the, the limit between each other or if, is there any limit at all? Um, yeah, but it, in that sense is a piece that uh, I felt kind of very comfortable doing it because it's kind of, uh, it's very personal, the way that you express yourself and it's very connected to the body. So you don't have like a, a stick that is like, a, you know, there is some distance when you play like marimba or vibraphone or setup because we have a stick separating you from the instrument. And in that piece, like you are the instrument. So it's very connected and it's very, yeah, it's very, in a way it's very playful, um, but it's also quite hard to learn, you know, and to synchronize the voice with the body and the rhythm and all that stuff. But once you know it, it's, I think it's very fun to play it if you like that kind of yeah piece. What how is it how is it notated? It's actually it's actually it's very it's very well notated. It's kind of set up notation in a way. Um and on top of the notes you write the what you have to say also with the rhythm. Um so it's the notation is kind of kind of good to understand. Um, I remember when I played, I played also Silence Must Be some years ago. And the notation is much, you don't, it's not really notated, you know, it's like you have instructions that you have to, that you follow. And the piece is not even edited, or at least by the time it was not edited when I played. So it was kind of uh, a mess to, to be able to play it in a competition because it was not edited and you need to have like the original score to play. So I had to write uh, Jean Geoffroy by the time and he gave me like the authorization to play the piece, you know. So in that sense, the Francois Saran piece is, uh, it's easier to, to read and to, to understand what is the material. And so on. Yeah. Awesome. I'd love to go to your most recent accomplishment. And we had Kai Strobel on the show uh, fairly recently, and he told us a bit about preparing for his concert, but that's one level, his virtual holographic concert. That's one level of stress. I cannot imagine 
where you have to compete against so many people in so many countries with so many different circumstances and you do so virtually. Can you walk us through how that worked for you? How was the, how were the recording sessions? How did you organize all of that? How was that for you mentally, physically, everything? Yes, so like I was kind of in the middle of a huge mess because uh, the day before Trump started like uh, the competition itself um, because the thing is that I don't know, probably people don't know this, but they Trump developed a special app to do the competition. Yeah. And it was like, we could only, so we couldn't send like old recordings. We had like a time frame to record the pieces and to upload in the app. You know? um, and then it's like, you, uh, yeah, you have this time frame, so you have to record in that, in that time frame. So basically the, the day before the first day of recordings, uh, Emmanuel Macron, he, like, he decreted like the lockdown in France. So, uh, and in, in the, the measures that he said, like the, the, the conservatoire was not open. Oh. So I basically ran into my phone and bought a train ticket to Amsterdam. Oh. Uh, yeah. And basically oh. the day, like 24 hours after I was like packing all my stuff to go to Amsterdam and I did went there, but then I had to be like one day uh, quarantine, like, because I had to take the negative test, you know, to be able to enter mm -hmm. in the conservatory. So, and in all this period, Trump was already happening, you know, and I was like moving it in a train and doing tests and the home waiting for the result and etc. Oh. Yeah. And so then for first round, then the other problem came that was like the part of building the setup, you know, because I, I had the setup in Lyon and then I arrived to Amsterdam and I had to kind of try to figure out how to build the setup more or less the same that I had in Lyon, but of course with other instruments and so on yeah and also the vibraphone but that's that's kind of easier to adapt and so on um wow. but yeah so the first round was kind of a mess you know so i actually didn't have many days to record i had like two sessions two recording sessions but in mm -hmm. that sense it was also kind of um good in the sense that i had a short time so I really had to go for it, you know? I couldn't, like when I was performing, it was like almost as live performance because I didn't have so much time to redo it and all of that, you know? So mm -hmm. I had like, I was like, and the rooms were all booked. So I only had like from 10 until midnight to record. And that was some point it's like, okay, I have to record it now. And it's like full in one take and like, yeah, just for live performance. Um, and in that sense, like, in the moment, I was like, oh, this is kind of bad. But now that I look back, it, maybe it also helped to, you know, for, to have like a, a recording with a live uh, performance. And so, yeah. And then, wow. but then for Asanga was kind of, kind of okay, the setup, because more compact. But the problem was the semifinal with 13 drums. You know, that's kind of, it's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> to, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, yeah, it was kind of a nightmare to build all the all the all the setup, um, and uh, I mean, thirteen drums. It's a piece that can easily turn into thirteen rims, you know, if you <laughs> yeah. used to it. So, but yeah, but uh, 
yeah and then to the final it was like um very short notice between uh, between rounds actually but mm -hmm. that's kind of live competition also it was like like this um and again the setup of the concerto i had to build everything again in the in amsterdam so that was kind of like a yeah, it was like kind of live competition. I felt that a bit, you know, because if you go there live, you don't, well, I kind of knew the instruments, but it was not the same. So when you go live, you have to, you have new instruments. And that's kind of, I feel that's also like it gives, it's more playful when you're performing because you discover different uh, new things because you have new instruments, you know, if you record already the same instruments, the same room for already like two months or something, you know, it's kind of gets a bit boring, you know. Then when you have something and it's like, you are kind of nervous to don't miss because you are not sure where the instruments are. It gives much more adrenaline. And that's, I mean, that's what I miss from this online competition. And then I managed to have it in different ways. You know? The excitement really, really hit the spot. <laughs> yeah, so you actually did have a full competition experience with you almost, the only thing that you were missing was to be jet lagged, I think. And then that was, that was it. But that I wouldn't even have that. Yeah. Well, um, that's fabulous. We have the, the man of the hour join Casey Cangelosi. Welcome to your own podcast, man. Hey, I decided to show up. Well, so happy to see you. Hey, everybody. How's it going? We're having a fantastic conversation here about um, the latest Trump. Uh, but I'd love to talk about it a little bit more, Agostinho. How was it to perform virtually with an orchestra? Like, how do you do that? How do you be a holographic soloist in front of an ensemble? <laughs> well, it, it, was, it was very weird because the thing is that um, we, what we did was that I don't know if uh, this was supposed to say because they want like two people to kind of think that we were actually playing live with the orchestra, but we, of course, we were not. You know, <laughs> so basically, what happened is that like Sunday was the final, and then on Thursday before, uh, they sent uh, like professional team to record us, and we had to record in a place. Uh, it was actually the same with Kai and the trio. We had to record in a place that was all black, like a black box. So then they could transfer like the um, the image to the to the hologram screen. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of, and we had, we had to record with a click track, and mm -hmm. then the orchestra also played with the click track, the ensemble, that's for sure, uh, and it somehow worked. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was kind of I miss that a lot because that's something that I enjoy a lot to do to play uh, with orchestra like solo and with ensemble and so on. Um, and I had that experience in the past and I was very looking forward to do it with the Asko Schoenberg ensemble. And that was kind of a bummer because then it was just like, we, I played and they played and then it all went together. But it was also nice to see like, because we, we had the MIDI of the orchestra part, but recorded with the click track, with, it's kind of hard to make music with that. Uh, especially mm -hmm. because there is no like this connection with the orchestra like hi here you can let go a bit or you can go push a bit you know so it was quite like it couldn't move almost you know <laughs> but um yeah but in the end i think it worked as well as it would be possible for, for them to 
Oh, absolutely. For such a pioneering uh, event. Uh, it was it was fabulous. It was it was incredible. But did you not get to I guess that would be too much work. But normally you would if you're preparing for such a, a part of a competition, you would get to talk to the conductor. And of course, they would tailor for every finalist, everyone would perform a little bit differently. So they would have different tempo markings for every performer. I guess you didn't have any of that. It was like everybody gets the same. Here you go play. Yeah, basically, because also it was kind of the piece was hard because it also had like a lot of bar changes and stuff like this, you know, and there was not so much space, especially if you play with the click track to do this kind of stuff or it could have like it could have happened, but then they would have to like adapt the click track to every yeah. candidate, you know, and that's kind of that it was like very short time and then it was kind of tricky, but it was a pity because I mean, this interaction between soloist and orchestra and conductor, it's like really the fun part of it. You know? um, but yeah. I hope in the future I can still play with it. One thing that comes a lot, it comes up a lot in these like 2020, 2021 sort of discussions is like, okay, well, we've proven that we can do a competition this way. So do we still need to do everyone flies to the same place in the future? And like, and that's not just only music competitions, like a lot of workplaces are now going virtual only in, in, in the future and things like that. For me personally, I still think there's merit to doing it the old way. Um, I think that this is a, a, a good way to do it in a, in a tight situation where we can't get out. But do you think that in the future competitions should be held this way or should they be held the old way? And I'll say that one thing that is nice about this way is it actually removes a lot of barriers, uh, like a lot of people that either couldn't schedule a flight to, you know, w wherever at that time or couldn't afford to go or something like that. Uh, I guess it can open doors for those people, but I still, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I like the old way better. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it would be, uh, this was great, but it's just for this situation, you know, like this, this is not a good way to do it. I mean. It's not the ideal way to do it, but in that sense, in terms of like Trump is a very supportive because they, to people that are coming from, I don't know, uh, the other continents, they, they also give uh, money for them to come, you know, and like in Eindhoven, they, they like, they give, uh, you have like housing because they do partnerships with families. So you don't have to pay a hotel or something, you know, so they really arrange that people don't have that barriers to come and play. But I mean, uh, it, it would be, I think it would be very bad if this starts to be like more usual because music in general, I mean, you cannot really uh, do it like via stream, you know, like it's kind of the thing is like the, the heat, you know, in the moment and the human connection between uh, performer and the audience and like the hall and all that stuff that's like the magic of it then if you, we all do it like this stream and recording is kind of it loses the fun i think and i don't think that you, it will be like this in the future so hopefully not yeah and i guess like one thing you said that sort of answered my question i've never really thought about is like we had we've had recording technology for like over a hundred years now, and we still have live performance. Like it's <laughs> the fact that you can reproduce it digitally doesn't doesn't replace the the sort of energy of being there in person. It it is different, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had like last week I had a 
at a concert at a gig here in Amsterdam and it was live streamed and mm -hmm. I never had like a live stream and it's kind of it's very weird because it's like you have to you you have to play live but it's not this live thing that the, the moment is there and then it vanishes you know the music vanishes and it stays on people's like memory and so on but it's also not a recording that you have like this kind of um, possibility to do it again and to make it better you know so it's like kind of you have to make it live but then it stays forever like in the dark web or so on you know <laughs> and it's like it's kind of very stressy you know but, it's the worst. <laughs> so scary. No one claps. <laughs> so weird. Like, I've seen a, a, a live stream recital where the performer, you know, finishes whatever piece and then they just bow to silence and then walk to the next instrument. <laughs> yeah, and that, this time we even had a we have an we had an encore and then we we arrived to the end and it was like, are we doing this? And it was like, yeah, yeah, no, we are not doing this. You know, it's like weird. <laughs> So we just stopped the concert and we went home. <laughs> what about a playback track, like a fake audience, you know? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. like just I mean, roaring applause after every piece, live stream. They are doing that in the, like in the, in the football games, they do that, right? That's right. Put, right. like the crowd and like- Just and steal that same NFL audience, yeah. Wait, really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're pumping fake noise into athletic events. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, like if you watch the, like the Daily Show or those kind of shows that don't have that background, like they don't have a laugh track after jokes. Mm -hmm. it's weird. The jokes are way less funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I remember, you know, like Bill Maher says something controversial, and then you don't hear, and it's a joke, and you don't hear a laugh track afterwards. You feel like, ooh, that was a, that was, they, <laughs> they didn't like that. It's like, no, there's no audience. You know, there's no sound either way. There's, there's actually an, an article. I don't know. I don't know if it's musically relevant. Maybe I'll report it on the future. But there's this website I like called Tedium, and they have this a whole article about laugh tracks. Check that out sometime. Cool. Ben and his tedium. I'll use a laugh track for my recital then. Instead of applause, I'll just use a laugh track after everything. <laughs> It'll bring the spirits up. What we could do is use a laugh track at inappropriate times on this show. Like we could edit it in. <laughs> could be fun. We yeah. just edit Pius's picture and that's that's what we do at inappropriate times. <laughs> Wait till the next time I edit an episode. <laughs> that was a good one, Ben. All right. I'm sorry. Big tangent. Um all right, so Agostinho, to wrap up the conversation about Trump, what has Trump brought you in your life? Now, the, these are different times and obviously they help with management. Um, did you buy your mansion with all that uh, money or did you spend it celebrating or also in terms of just contacts and what to do with yourself musically now? How have they helped you? Uh, yeah, so as you said, it's kind of a strange time now Yeah, to, to kind of see what real profit or benefit I can actually get from them. Um, but but actually I did add like some invitations that uh, I think I wouldn't have if I wouldn't uh, get the first prize in Trump, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Holland because the competition was here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a big thing here. So in that sense, yeah, it, I think it's it really helped for to get a boost for people to know me and to uh, to call me for things because I'm not in my country and then it it can get a bit more difficult, you know, because of language barrier and etc. etc. Et 
um, but they are like they are very supportive. Like they have a very good uh, management support and marketing. So basically, all the stuff that I do, like I had a meeting with the marketing um, leader of Trump, and we discussed some stuff. And she told me like, yeah, everything you do. Um, we will also like share and try to you know promote your work and stuff like this, which of course now is kind of uh, not as much as uh, I would like to, but still you know they 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 do their best and I also do my best to to do stuff and yeah let's see I hope like in the next year it will be better I had uh, I had the concert here with the solo with the ballet orchestra in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. which was cancelled um, and um, we are trying to arrange a, a tour to Russia on the next season let's uh, uh -huh. see also how that goes with all the situations so I'm like praying a lot <laughs> for this to get better soon like, yeah, yeah. yeah oh it will certainly help it's just going to be a delayed response I mean nobody's getting anything yeah. these times so it will it'll yeah, come right. Um, I was just going to add a little thing, you know, I was listening to a, an interview with uh, Gary Grafman, who is the piano professor of Yu Zhuang and Lang Lang, and he was talking about how he did not allow them to compete. And when the interviewer asked him why, he said, well, they don't need to because I know so many conductors and I just invite them to come listen to them, and then they get engagements for a fantastic student, another student that he had, he said, I brought in some conductors, they heard them, and they didn't get engagements in the next two years. So okay, they went and won the Clyburn competition, and then they had engagements. And I thought how interesting that was that, you know, this elite of the piano has the possibility to skip competitions, because that's, quote, unquote, for, according to this man, it's a waste of time, because they should be learning other repertoire at a different pace as opposed to you know being prepared for a competition now and for one in six months because you can't do a competition every month obviously that's gonna spend you um but he would just arrange meetings with really important people with managers and conductors to hear them because he's a big shot and that would be their entry into the big stages and i thought wow i don't know if any percussionist who gets the chance to do that everybody has to go through a competition sort of or be the justin bieber like casey cangelosi and then you don't have to compete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Casey, why didn't you, did you compete when you were young? Did that bring you things? Not like, not like this. A lot of state competitions, you know, it was pretty routine to go to PAS state competitions. Utah was a really happening scene. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was like since, since high school and through college, you know, every year we'd, we'd carpool. My mom would take a carload of us, maybe even in middle school too. I feel like I did it a few times in middle school. I wish I was a little more competition aware back then, but um, arguably probably Trump and probably these competitions didn't exist, at least not for us. The, the one inter international thing I ever did, or national, I guess it's only national, was um, Music Teachers National Association. Mm -hmm. I beat the hell out of them. Of course you did. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that sometime. Just savvy. Bet you, bet you wish you could go back to that middle school competition circuit. Now you'd kick mm -hmm. ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my diddles are cleaner now. I just thought that was really interesting how all the great percussionists have to go sort of through this route if they want to become 
soloists, especially, you know, concert soloists um, and how this exists, I guess, for all the other instruments. So we still have ways I, to push. I don't know that that's always true. Like, I mean, there are certainly the Geneva competition winners and things you hear about, but like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I don't know of like Evelyn Glennie and Colin Curry being huge competition winners. Um, I know of. Also Martin Grubinger, I don't think he also. I'm yeah. Sure, no? I don't want to. Like... It could be kind of a generational thing too. You know that now it's so much more common that this is a more, yeah. a more common route to go. It's, yeah, it's a faster track for sure. Ago, maybe not as much. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if they were even there, you know, um, when I was, when I, I mean, I'm 39, you know, so I was, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think also maybe U.S. percussionists weren't going over, but I mean, like in like, what was it, 91, 92, something, there was the Lee Howard Stevens Marimba competition. I mean, there there have been competitions, but uh, I think the, the U.S. participation in the European competitions is has heated up in, in recent years. But also another, like, I would consider big name, like Cameron Leach isn't, He's not a Trump competitor or anything like that. He's he's an upcoming star here. So well, know, he's won the PAS. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I just I, I don't think of American competitions as the same like scale as the elite Euro competitions. I guess. <laughs> I, agree with, I agree with Carly. I think it's age specific and generational. Like people who are like my age, like when I was at that age. If just to give you guys some perspective, the Rite of Spring had just premiered. <laughs> that's, that's like that's like where percussion was at so, yeah. all right all right i take that back that wasn't smart that wasn't all throughout you know thought throughout but i definitely see this in as you mentioned in the younger generation like no simone rubino kai um they it's, all had to win something it's, and it's definitely very much it's a faster track i think than trying to work your way up like oh, that yeah. i mean like would you recommend doing it to a student i mean of course you know yeah sure definitely do it. especially if you want to perform you know, it's like the big question is always, how do I make those connections? How do I get those contracts? How do I get booked? And um, it's like, yeah, we'll fast, fast track right into that. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I came in late to the, the episode, but yeah, you all were talking about management. It's like, how do you connect with management right away? Well, there's, there's, I guess, a way, you know. Well, you know, actually in the uh, episode where we talked to Tamer Yariv from Perkadu, they said that their rise to fame was when they had 10 minutes of Zubin Mehta's time and then he stayed for a full hour recital and then picked them up. But I've never heard of that happening anywhere else. And they too are a little bit to the older generation. I just don't see that percussionists have a lot of conductors and managers ears. Like if I was a person of influence so that I could invite conductors to listen to my students. I just don't hear that happening a lot, I guess. Well, and isn't that because we're, you know, the same reason it's hard to get new pieces of music programmed, you know, it's just like for every, you know, for every Brahms violin concerto, like how many Schwantner concertos with Evelyn Glennie are there, you know, it's like, what do you think is even a thousand to one? You think it's 2000 to one? I mean, I don't know, but uh, it's probably that same, that same thing. You know, we talk so much about getting diverse composers, getting new music it's and i think also percussionists like we're all in that same little clump of of challenge i just had one quick antidote and actually i do i would like to get back to our guests with maybe an instagram question but uh there's the speaking of, speaking of generational uh there's that the jonathan haas anecdote about i was i guess the early 80s he went to compete and you know he applied and wrote his letter and all they said 
and you know, he said, I'm a, a timpani soloist and I'd like to compete. And they said, oh, sorry, Mr. Haas, we only have a competition for musical instruments. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so bad. I want to be, be a John Haas student just for that. Like, you know, you're doing a timpani lesson and you'd be like, wait, you want me to play this? No, I only want to play instruments, sorry. Musical instruments, yeah. Musical instruments, that's right. Now, he told us that story on the show. It's so cool, just how how far the perspective has come, you know? Well, while we're talking still about competitions and your experience, Agostino, with, with Trump and everything, we have two Instagram questions that relate. Um, the first is from Maralena Morerira Rato, um, and she asks, how do you study during quarantine? And especially, I'm sure, um, during quarantine and the pandemic, how are you preparing for a competition? And then another another similar kind of related question from Matteo Renzi Percussion. He says, how did you manage to work and prepare such a huge repertoire for the competition? So I guess let's combine them. How did you manage to work and prepare such a huge repertoire for the competition during a pandemic? Uh, I have to be honest, I, I think it was actually kind of easier, you know, because the world was stopped, you know, you were not like receiving mails and like uh, things from like everywhere, you know, for me, it was like a really a nice moment to close a bit myself in the practice room and like discover new stuff, you know, because mm -hmm. it's not so often that you have that amount of time and like, have, like, at some point in March, April, it, it looked like the world time was like floating, you know, like not going anywhere. Uh, and that was like a really nice time to to really practice like sometimes we we play a lot and we like learn a lot of pieces but like it's not so often that we have a lot of time to like really close up in our instrument and try to really think about like details like how this work how does this work for me and so on um yes yeah, so in that sense um the quarantine was kind of uh, well, I should say the other way around, like to be preparing for a competition and so on was kind of a good escape for the quarantine and for COVID and all that stuff, you know, because it makes it made my mind kind of uh, in another place. Uh, so that was great. And um, about the repertoire, yeah, it's it's kind of I, I build that repertoire throughout years, you know. It's not like I decided all the program six months uh, before and I suddenly practice all the pieces and I play them. You know? um, so in that sense, I kind of combined pieces that I played in the past uh, and pieces that I learned also recently. Uh, but I think you know, when you do a competition, it's also kind of a lot of time management and try to be clever in the pieces that you choose uh, in the sense that you have to know yourself and know, yeah, this piece I know I can play well, this piece I, I know I cannot play so well. I think sometimes people think too much about like what is the jury gonna think about or stuff like this. But in the end, if, we, if you go in this kind of feeling, it, it will never be like a very good performance because if you are not, if you are not completely like convinced about the pieces that you play and if you don't love the music that you play, that will come out very easily when you perform. So that was like, so that was why it was easy, kind of easy to choose the repertoire for me because I always or mostly played pieces that I loved, like in the past year. So I kind of picked the ones that I felt it would 
makes sense in this context. So, like, I didn't learn a lot of new music for Trump, especially. Well, I think what you just said is really important. You weren't just, okay, I'm going to go for this competition and I'm going to start learning everything from scratch now. That it's a, you're, you're preparing for the competition even before you know the specifics of what you're going to go for because you're working in, in those directions. Yeah, and I played the pieces like in recitals and concerts and that. And it's like, in the end, the competition is one more stage. It's like, okay, you are being judged, but you are also being judged when you play live for people. And it's right. even, I mean, uh, for me, it's much more important that like, I, I, I get more nervous when I have to play to my mom or something like this, you know, because it's like, you know, it's, but uh, of course I respect all the juries and all that stuff, but it's very, it's so subjective that you just have to go for your thing. And if they like, they, they like it, if they don't like them, Yeah, nice. Send a letter to Mike Burritt saying, Mike, you're not half as scary as my mom when I play for you. <laughs> Grubinger, sorry, <laughs> my mom beats you any day. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, also in that sense, like, because what we were talking about, I, I think for me, what helped me a lot, it, it was that I didn't do competitions when I was very young, like nine, 10 years old. You know? I was just until I was like 15, 16, I was just playing, you know, not like competing with other people or so on, you know. And I think from also people that I talk nowadays that people had like very kind of bad experience when they were like eight years old, you know, like they went to a competition and then they forget the music or something like this. And then that gets like in the system for very long and it's very hard after to be able to recover from that, you know. In that sense, I think I, I'm very thankful that I didn't put myself in that kind of situation when I was younger. I was just playing for fun and because I enjoyed playing. Um, yeah, and later on when I was like 15, 16, then I started to, to go to that kind of pressure. But also I think with competitions is also a matter of experience. Like I had, I had the luck to, the first experience that I had was very positive. It was like a dual competition. And then we shared a lot and we like become really like best friends and you know and then it gave such a beautiful meaning to the music and then the work we have done and so on so in that sense like all the competitions that i did afterwards it was always with this kind of positive uh, thing in mind like i'm doing this like i'm trying to become better like from you know myself to myself um and then yeah then it's always like a positive mood when I go to a competition. It's not never like, a, oh, I'm getting like tested or something like this, you know? So in that sense, I think it's also a lot about personal experience on, yeah. Do you have any advice as to like where that mindset comes from? You know, cause I like, of course that's such a good mindset. And we've had other competition winners say the same thing. Like I think it was Alice Pan said, you know, you got to think of competitions, not as like, oh, I just have this like one competition I got to do. And it's this huge thing. And no, it's just like part of being a, you, you know, being a performer at competitions, just they come and go and you can't dwell too much on any one of them. But yeah, that's such a healthy mindset. Do you, do you know where that came from for you? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was maybe because like the, the experience that I had, they were good, you know, I had the luck like to be prize winner and so on. And then that gives like kind of a good, you know, uh, feeling to it. But I think it's also like what I do a lot of times when I'm nervous, like I put things into like a, 
I don't know if this word in English makes sense, I, like relativize, you know, make, put things in perspective, basically. You know, like when I go to a concert or to a competition, like what is actually the worst thing that can happen, you know? And I realized the, many times the worst thing that can happen is not that bad, you know? Okay, so you have a bad day, so you don't go through the competition, like, so what, you know? I always feel like, yeah, it's kind of, that, that's life, but I think it's also about people, when they go to the competition, they already have to trust themselves, you know, in the sense that trust yeah. that the music that they are doing is, is, is good, you know, it's something that will touch people. And that if it, like, we, of course, like oh, everyone says competition, like it's very subjective, jury, blah, blah. But they also know that it can like affect a lot when you get like a, a bad experience or a bad comment. Um, but in that sense, I think it's all like, it's kind of mindset of putting things in perspective. You know, it's a percussion competition, you know, it's not that important if you think about it you know it's like it's great if you if you can get some something out of it but in the end is that's not and again competitions are very it's like cycles you know because you win a competition and then next edition someone wins it and then you have to do your road by yourself and do your projects and develop your thing and you have to do that already before you go to a competition you know? what i always said is like i had like a line uh, that it was like it's layers you know you had like a big line that's stuff that you want to do in the future and then to the layers you add stuff that can help you to achieve that line and competitions are as you said like one way like a kind of a fast track but if you don't win it doesn't mean that you cannot reach the, the big line that you were thinking about you know it's just different and i mean there are so wonderful musicians that don't even apply to a competition you know it's like because it's not it's not for every not everybody has to do it you know like yeah that's it's just you have to know yourself and know like if to go to a competition will bring something positive to you and if you ever know and some people say like a bad comment to you you have to know yourself to know that it will be you will kind of get the point of like what why did you, you pass and work on that that was basically what happened to me in in ARD you know uh, I got into the last eight, but then I didn't pass. And then I got some comments. Uh, and then I, yeah, I kind of, uh, you have to filter the comments, you know. <laughs> some stuff you have to throw away because it's not useful. And then you have to, to pick that thing that will actually help you in the future. And then, yeah, just work on that. Sure. Yeah, so <laughs> to get to another, uh, Instagram question here. Uh, we had a question from, uh, uh, pardon my pronunciation, Joel Valpacos, uh, who says, who is your favorite composer? And I guess we could maybe ask a, a related question of what, what is it that makes you like a composer? <laughs> I, I do not have a favorite composer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I cannot name one composer that is favorite composer. The things that I like a lot of kind of music, you know, I think like every style you can, you can easily recognize when it's good music, you know, and that's, for me, that's most important uh, than style itself, you know, it can be Baroque music or super modern music or 
a jazz music or whatever you know like you can you can recognize uh when it, it's actually music made with content and like with thought behind you know um and that's what i think for me it's kind of most important also i don't know like um for instance my timpani teacher nick Vaud, he always tell like i had this discussion with him sometimes and he he told me once a thing that the, he said like the Beatles they have a Mozart quality inside you know and in that sense I think that a lot of music from different styles different composers have a lot of it's just you can hear when it's the music made like with it's you know it's good music you know? and uh, I always like to play different styles that's why uh, uh, and for instance also in Trump um, I also choose very, that was like one of the comments of the jury that I chose a very wide range of repertoire, uh, you know, and that's why, because, um, yeah, it's, it, for me, the style, it's just one thing to be aware when you play it, but it's not like, uh, something that I will pick, you know, so I prefer to play like a very good baroque, baroque a composer than to play like a bad modern composer you know it's just yeah that's how it works so just to follow up on being able to play different styles i saw you performing with uh, renier bass a relief party where you played marimba for an hour with a full band and just like jammed how how much is jazz infusion and that type of language in in you how how was that do you do you love to perform that do you regularly do that how does that work i never played in the jazz band before and then Rainier Bass oh. is a uh, jazz guitar and the he made this whole project was uh, commissioned by bim house uh, and it was all new music by him he wrote all the he wrote all the program and he wanted to wear the marine band and uh, again like this this was one of the moments that the winning Trump helped, you know, because he saw that I won the competition and he saw some videos and then called me to do it. And I was kind of stressed, you know, because I never played in a jazz band. And I was like, oh, what if he asks me to improvise? Blah, 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 you know? Which he actually did. And then I was like, to then I, had, I couldn't say really no, you know, so I was like, <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, but at some point I was like, I mean, we are classical trained and it's such a pity that sometimes we don't have this skill to like, to play in our instrument, you know, to improvise, to, you know, it's cool. And uh, yeah, but it was, I mean, it was a great week. I think it was like a kind of a model how concerts can work in the sense that like to make the project, we all made a COVID test. And uh, so it was negative test. And I think that gave a really nice different atmosphere to the rehearsal space, you know, because I guess you all have been in rehearsals with a mask and people kind of a bit afraid and with this kind of approach and everybody knew that you know like no one was sick although it's not like 100 sure but you know it gives another kind of uh, feeling to the rehearsals and it was great to play that kind of music it's such a different mood and different feeling and different kind of rehearsing and um, they were all amazing musicians and it was for me it was easier to fit in such good people you know when the, everyone around you is great it's like it's so easy you know? <laughs> so yeah it was yeah. 
It's a fabulous concept. It's on YouTube. Uh, you folks should check it out. And that's, I mean, I asked because you looked very comfortable and I was like, do you play marimba in a jazz band all the time? I mean, that's, that's why, but it was, and your solo, I mean, it was like amazing. You went ham, like it was yeah. crazy. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, okay. So another thing that we had, uh, scheduled for today is to talk about a little article from USA Today. Now, I'm not very well acquainted with this um, periodical and magazine, but it seems to me like it's not uh, perhaps has the highest echelon of, of intellect that they try to cater to, which is why I picked it to talk about it. Um, anyway, the, the title of the article was Meet the Under 40 Years Old, I guess, Musicians Who Are Making Classical Instruments Cool. So I, I looked it up and of course, here I am, I'm now going to be a jerk again. Um, it's hard to find meaningful good articles about music, it, it turns out, at least these days, something that's new. Um, so basically, the, the article listed uh, a bunch of people under 40 who are doing their best to keep instruments such as the violin, piano, and cello front and center in music lovers' mind. Well, thank you. Yes, we've known about these for many, many centuries. And then they mention how uh, some folks uh, get to have a huge impact on music. Um, for example, they think of Lizzo and how it appears that like this, the interest in flute has spiked so much since she has risen to stardom. So, okay. Um, the article then listed a lot of these people's careers in numbers. So there goes Lindsay Sterling, we all know her, the great YouTube sensation, and then says age 34, worked with Pentatonix. 12.8 million YouTube subscribers. And then you're like, okay, well, this person is very reasonably considered to be famous. Then there is a Charlie Siem, who I have not heard from about before. Um, definitely not heard from him before, <laughs> who is 35 and is a model and violinist who has a billionaire father and a family of artists and has played with Miley Cyrus and Brian Adams. And also you keep reading and then it's like, okay, and Dior and Armani and Hugo Boss, he didn't play with them. He's a model for them. Okay, excellent, has 8,300 YouTube subscribers. And you're like, okay, these are different levels of impact now. Then goes Lang Lang, who's 38, who is described in this article as the J-Lo of the piano. Now I have no idea what that means. And it says, because of his ability to transition back and forth between classical and other genres. Well, there, we just talked about that now with Agustinho C. J-Lo, I'm so glad that she is the epitome of being great at transitioning between genres and that Lang Lang is J-Lo on piano. In any case, he's the first Chinese pianist to be engaged by the Berlin Phil and the Vienna Phil. He has uh, 166,000 YouTube subscribers. And then they go to Trombone Shorty, who's a fabulous multi-instrumentalist who has 20,000. And then comes Laura van der Heyden, for example, cello, a 2019 newcomer of the year by the BBC Music Magazine Award recipient, who has less than a thousand. And then more and more of these musicians who have less than a thousand YouTube subscribers, which not everything is, um, measured in YouTube subscribers, we all know that, but there is a huge discrepancy between Lindsay Sterling and then everything else that's described. So Ben says, USA Today is actually written to, I think, a third grade reading level, LOL, definitely. 
I, I definitely think so. But I was I was wondering um, what y'all thought. Uh, Casey has frequently spoken on this topic, uh, mentioning uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson as an example of someone who popularizes science, but you know is not. He's made to try to reel people into science, but he's not the kind of scientist that you'd go and not understand what he speaks of when he's in a conference hall. What do you all think of uh, these superstars and all of these measuring ways of stardom and whether that really means that they make classical music cool? Like, what? What, did, what is this article? I didn't know we had to make classical music cool. I thought we were there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what we do is pretty cool. No, I, I, think, I think it's interesting, especially when we talk about, um, I don't know, even, even like they're, they're saying Long Long is the, the J-Lo of the piano because he transitions back and forth between genres. and. You know, even like when when you see an orchestra that does like a pop arrangement, usually it comes across really cool. But sometimes you see it like, do do we need to have that in order to get people in seats in the hall? Like, do we have to do pop music or do we have to? I, I love playing these movie soundtracks, right? When we like they show the movie like Star Wars and Harry Potter. It's so fun. People love it. And it's fun to play. But do we need to have a movie on the screen to enjoy the music? You know, so it was one thing that that made me aside from all the, you know, questionable comparisons and this kind of this this list is like a mash of I don't know, I, I maybe I'm not aware does Long Long do any crossover like different genres? I've never, you know. He's played with Metallica. Okay, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So there it is. But but the list seems like here's a bunch of people who happen to be under 40 who who play quote unquote classical instruments. But but anyway, I guess that's one of the things that came to mind to me is thinking about like, how much do we want to change our art that we do to make it accessible for the masses versus let's do what we do and do it extremely well and people are gonna appreciate it. I'm not I'm not sure what the right answer is. I think I think one thing that Carly's sort of hinting at a lot is like it can be kind of campy. <laughs> like a lot of like even in professional per service orchestras that I've played in, like a lot of the pop concerts, it's literally like high school arrangements of Harry Potter music. It's, it's like <laughs> not great. I think maybe what the article is hinting at is the, uh, artists that have figured out how to present classical music in a way that makes sense in the modern world. And uh, actually, if I could pat Ksenia on the back for an example of this, Ksenia just released a, a recording of the, remind me of the name of the piece, Ksenia. Message from the Emperor. Message from the Emperor by uh, Martin Bresnik. And uh, I remember, I won't name any names, but I saw a recording of it a while back that was in sort of like, it almost looked like a band room, like a high school band room. And it it just wasn't, it wasn't a good recording. Like, I'm not saying anything about the players, just the, the quality of the recording itself, just sort of, I actually just disliked the piece, <laughs> like based <laughs> on the recording. And then I see Ksenia's recording in like this beautiful hall with like, exquisite lighting and really good camera work and like there's actually a cinematographer and it's like all very artistically presented it's like oh no i i actually do like this piece it's it's just presented in a way that that i enjoy it and i mean like i've seen like lang lang has like a like a music video of i think it's goldberg variations or at least one of the goldberg variations and it's like yeah i mean i'm i'm of the the type of person that would go to a concert hall and see him but if i was a, a high schooler that didn't know anything about classical music that would 
that would have curb appeal to me. So like I can I can see the merit in figuring out how to present these things to the masses. I don't think it makes classical music any more or less cool. I think it maybe just makes it more approachable, if that makes sense. Right, but all of it just requires a lot of money. I mean, what Lindsay Sterling does, and I really can't tell, I haven't listened to her enough besides to be informed, like I've seen a couple of things and it hasn't stuck with me, but all of that is just a huge production budget. It seems like if that is what appeals to people is you know how it's presented. And, and in that case, I mean, almost anybody could do it. And especially this uh, CM person who, I, I mean, I don't wanna feel like I'm harping on him, but you know, comes from a, from a very wealthy family and works as a model and is a violinist who plays Paganini mostly, you know? So it's, it's the ringtone music that everyone can recognize. Um, and then that is like celebrated in, I guess a lot of people read USA Today. I don't know. It seems to me like it's one of those things you'd see at the right next to the cash register on groceries, you know, in grocery yeah. store lines. It's always like almost every hotel has some USA Todays in the lobby too. Well, there you go. You know, nobody keeps the BBC Music Magazine there. Right. So. <laughs> I don't know. Agostinho, what do you think of, of these um, celebrations of, of such performers? Yeah, I mean, as we you all said already, like, it's kind of a hard topic because, you know, um, I, I understand why people uh, try to go in that direction, but can you really call it like a classic well it depends on the people but it's like i i understand why why people do it and i think even like knowing conservatory um they kind of encourage people to do that more and more which i'm not sure if i totally agree with uh, mm -hmm. like we had this own this one teacher that was always like saying i, I you need to have a Twitter, you need to have, I don't know, YouTube channel, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. do you really need to have that to be like an happy musician? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's always, it depends on what you as a musician want to, to do, you know, what you want to transmit, you know, if you want to be like, I don't know, yeah, like a kind of a pop star playing cello, then it kind of makes money to invest a lot of budget to do that, this kind of uh, videos and productions and so on. But if you if you are happy playing to a five people audience, uh, I don't know, uh, one hour of uh, electronic music, uh, for example, it's like, sure, you know, you don't you don't that. I think it's all about what each person wants to wants to do and feels happy doing about. Um, and yeah, in that sense, I think it's something very personal. Uh, so our other question is from Curb Your Read, and he says, when's the last time you practiced tambourine? Which I'm guessing there's a story there. It's <laughs> gotta be a side joke. <laughs> no, no, there, there isn't. Yeah, no, Reed, he was a, he's a, he was a fellow, he was a fellow colleague here in, uh, in Amsterdam, he's now he's he's student in Michigan, I think, uh, with Doug. Um, no, I think what he meant, what he meant with the question is like here in Amsterdam is a very uh, orchestra oriented school in a way, you know. Like we have uh, a lot of teachers, and we have, I mean, people that for me are like very 
relevant also in the solo scene, like Peter Promel, uh, Arnold Marinson, of course, and then we have also Rachel and Ramon as like kind of younger generation teachers. Uh, but indeed, I mean, a lot of people go to Amsterdam to study with the guys from the Concertgebouw Orchestra, which is kind of like one of the most important orchestras uh, in Europe and I guess also around the world. Um, and the, 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 I mean, it's a very hard school in terms of you really have to practice uh, everything, which is great for a bachelor, I think, because you get really wide uh, range of uh, knowledge on all, all the instruments and so on. And of course, I have to practice a lot of tambourine, triangle, cymbals, bass drum, timpani, etc. But I have to say, it, it helped me a lot in the when I play solo repertoire. You know, like when I was playing thirteen drums, all the all I, I only could think about Nick lessons on timpani, you know, and how to take the sound of the timpani and you know how to make it like legato and because it's such and also tambourine, you know, and the accessoire, it has such a level of detail, like the fingers, the small muscles and all of that, you know, and even the approach to the repertoire, like how you approach an uh, orchestra excerpt, they are so uh, like methodic and so hard in the sense, like try to get as must, like most details possible. And there is a lot of like, thinking about the sound of the instrument and how does it sound in the orchestra and so on. So in that sense, it helped me a lot. Like, I think it improved a lot my solo playing while I, when I started to apply this orchestra thinking and details in solo playing. So in that sense, uh, as a reply to the question, I, I do still practice tambourine, so. That's good to know. Um, okay, last question is, is I reached out to a person that I thought might be a, a mutual friend. Um, I reached out to Cristiano Rios, who I met in Lisbon, and I asked him to give me a funny story about you. Um, because I, you're, you're one of the rare people who doesn't have a huge, at least I couldn't find, you know, a huge presence on social media so that I could find something funny or whatever. And he said, um, I'm very careful. <laughs> you are very careful but he said uh i should ask you about funny stories when you were studying at the professional music school that you were quite the energetic and rebel kid so i'll ask you he was a gentleman to not reveal <laughs> any details but i'll ask you about your times professional school oh you mean like yeah he meant like the secondary school which yes it was like before bachelor and uh, it was it's very intense and I noticed when I came here like to Amsterdam and so on that it's not very common in like other countries that like what we did was basically when when I was 15 like secondary school we basically went to the same to a building the school it was like a music school you know? mm -hmm. and it was like we had like sub subjects that were adept for instance I don't know instead of mathematics we had like sound physics you know yeah stuff. yeah like everything was adapted to like the musical program and stuff like this. And it was in the same building, like the, the theory theory lessons and percussion lessons. Um, and yeah, like our teacher, it was like, he's uh, very, <laughs> how can I put, he's very connected to the uh -huh. school and the students and he, he lives it very intensively, you know, which is great, you know, if you, know how to handle with it 
Um, and uh, in that sense, of course, we spend a lot of times in those rooms and we were young and there is, we had like all the colleagues and stuff like this. So we, we are, of course, we, we did our things. I mean, there are some, so many histories we like, we would, we still do it, you know, with people that study there, like we could sit for hours and hours on telling about histories about it. But yeah, it was, it was a very intense time of my life, you know, like when we did this first competition, the duo competition, uh, we would have like lessons every day and uh, it, it was like in August, you know, basically every day or summer. And it paid off because it, then it really helped for us and it was like such a learning uh, process. But yeah, but I mean, I still keep in touch with basically everyone I studied there with and we just, it's a very, it was a very intense period in my life. <laughs> Okay, so folks, I'm sorry, you'll probably get to hear this if you go visit those spaces where stories are shared, but in, in these public spaces, virtual, we will not share any dirty details from what no, happened. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense, like, if you, if you don't know all the characters involved, it's, it's never like a single story of just me doing something, you know, it's like all the... Uh -huh. Okay, well, well, we'll start going around and interviewing everyone. And by the time we reach your last classmate, they will have to deliver the story because we'll know all the actors. You guys know, know the term mutually assured destruction? <laughs> <laughs> like, I've got all the garbage on you for whatever you got on me. <laughs> yeah, basically. We all have a pact of confidential, you know, it's like, what stays there, what happens there, it stays there forever. <laughs> Only the walls can tell the secrets. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. That's that's good, good human character. Awesome. Well, Agostinho, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations. Sir? I hope to see I hope to see you all like live soon. Same, same. We hope so too. And we hope we get to hear you perform live for us soon too. Um, thanks, podcasters, thanks listeners, and we will talk to you and hear you soon in episode 274. Bye. Bye.